conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we spend the hour talking about press freedom. Attorneys for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange plan to appeal to the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom after the country's appeals court overturned a decision that blocked the extradition of Assange to the United States. We'll talk with Kevin Gostola of Shadowproof.com about what this means for press freedom moving forward. Later in the program, we re-air a conversation I had earlier in the year with Project Censored's Associate Director, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We'll discuss the new gatekeepers, how proprietary algorithms increasingly determine the news we see. Up next on the Project Censored Show, an hour about press freedom. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we have updates on the Julian Assange case as we have news that Assange plans to appeal the high court decision in the UK backing extradition to the United States. And this, of course, is the article and topic written by independent journalist Kevin Gostola. Kevin Gostola returns to the Project Censored show, was just on a couple months ago. I have to say that for Project Censored, Kevin Gostola has been a go-to source for whistleblowing for years now. And in the case of Assange, we think he's among the top reporters really working on the Julian Assange and WikiLeaks case. Kevin Gostola is managing editor of shadowproof.com. He also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Kevin Gostola, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thank you. It's good to talk with you. Kevin, it's always good to have you on, even if it's not always good news sometimes that we end up discussing. But we won't leave people with only bad news here today. I know you have plenty of things to say that run the gamut on the Assange case, particularly based on your recent piece at shadowproof.com. Assange plans to appeal high court decision backing extradition to the United States. So this has multifacets to it, including press freedom. But let's just get started. Kevin Gostola, please remind our listeners what's going on with the Assange case, why it is so important, and what these latest developments happen to be. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is in Belmarsh High Security Prison and has been detained there for a little more than two years now. And recently, the High Court of Justice in the UK ruled on an appeal granting the US government's appeal, which sent the extradition request back to the lower level to the district court to be then signed off on and sent to the Secretary of State in the UK, which is the official process for beginning, you know, everything that would be required to load him on an airplane and bring him to the United States for a trial. So it it made the prospect of him coming to the United States even more possible and likely. And so his legal team immediately indicated that they would appeal this decision to a higher court, to the British Supreme Court. And of course, this is on the charges that were issued when President Donald Trump was in office. His Justice Department, this would have been when Bill Barr was Attorney General, issued these indictments. First, we had a charge that was a computer crime charge, a conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. 
And then we had 17 charges a month later that were under the Espionage Act, making it very clear that the warnings that had come from advocates and from people who were following the war on whistleblowers, the crackdown on leaks to the press had escalated as they had predicted to targeting journalists, that it was a war on journalism, that the war on whistleblowers wasn't just a war on whistleblowers, that it implicated and impacted journalism as well. And so now, you know, we wait to see what will happen, but we have this legal limbo that essentially makes it so Julian Assange is embroiled in all of this while his health continues to decline and decline. And that was illustrated in a very grim way by Stella Morris, his partner and fiance, coming forward and telling uh, a tabloid in the UK that Julian Assange had a mini stroke on the first day of the appeal hearing back in October. And that he had a drooping eyelid and now he's taking anti-stroke medication. Again, now elevating the urgency of this even more. It was urgent before, but making it even more urgent that we find a way to free Julian Assange if we care about press freedom. Absolutely. I was just going to ask you about the deteriorating health. I know that at the UN, Nils Messer has mentioned this numerous times. Several other journalists have mentioned the problems of the ways in which Assange is actually being treated in Belmarsh and actually arguably tortured. Do you want to remind our listeners a little bit about just the history again of Assange being isolated from the Ecuadorian embassy to the fact that he was being spied upon there all the way through Belmarsh where he's been isolated? That's something that we don't hear a lot about, Kevin Gastola. His legal team will tell you that he's been in arbitrary detention in some form or another for over a decade. We extend this back to when he was first under some home confinement or under some restriction as he was facing allegations in Sweden. Then there were due process violations and issues with how the prosecutors in Sweden handled sexual allegations against him that were brought forward. There were always always a lot of skepticism among Assange's legal team about the nature of the claims made against him. And he entered the Ecuador embassy in 2012 while Rafael Correa was president. Uh, They assessed his credible fears of what the U.S. would do to him. And they granted him diplomatic asylum, something the U.S. refuses to recognize And so it continued to treat him like a fugitive. And they still, to this point, believe that he fled uh, an effort to try and bring him to justice, justice being their word for their political prosecution, and that he was in the embassy for this amount of time, isolated, not able to have access to sunlight, confined, in some degree, or you could say he was more confined than if he was in prison, because there's not really an area where he can go outdoors for recreation in the embassy. He had to stay in the embassy. And that also meant that he was cut off from certain medical care that he needed. And then in 2019, he's endured a spying operation, an espionage operation that is backed by US intelligence by a private security company named UC Global that is now facing, their their director faces criminal case in Spain for privacy offenses or or, or, or attacks on Julian Assange that were committed. 
and he, he was detained. He was expelled the Ecuador government under the right-wing president, Lenin Moreno, which had a nice cozy relationship with President Donald Trump's administration, expelled him. They engaged in a pressure campaign to force him out. They revoked his citizenship. They did away with that protection that had been granted to him as an asylee, and the British authorities hauled him out on a technical bail jumping charge, put him in prison. He served 50 weeks in Belmarsh under that charge. Again, the bail jumping comes from seeking asylum, and then he's been in Belmarsh ever since, denied bail by even the judge who had decided to spare him earlier in January 2020. And he's just been languishing there, unable to be out on home confinement, even despite the risks of COVID-19 and, and how that spreads in prisons and how he's vulnerable to that. And they just have made it their priority to create prejudice and fear in the minds of any judge and, and, and lead them to believe that he's a flight risk without any basis whatsoever. So you mentioned Stella Morris, Assange's fiance. She called the recent ruling for the extradition a grave miscarriage of justice, which you wrote. And the reason I'm reading that is that Morris went on to say that um, this decision was made on International Human Rights Day. And, and it, it reminded me of how Daniel Hale, the whistleblower, the drone whistleblower, was sentenced on the eve of National Whistleblower Day. It's almost as if these days are chosen for their symbolic irony. You know, can you comment a little bit on some of the human rights angles? I think you just listed quite a, a number of human rights infractions with the way in which, which Assange is being jailed. His imprisonment is part of the torture. It is part of the punishment, is it not, Kevin Gostola? It's punishment by process. And you mentioned that there have been prior examples where you could call it irony. Chelsea Manning was convicted, was found guilty in a military court on National Whistleblower Day back in 2013. So this is our system. And I ask, is this hypocrisy or is it something worse? And I, I, I trend toward that it's something worse. Why does the US government and its leading officials believe they can hold a summit for democracy mark International Human Rights Day, and at the same time, push forward with this prosecution of a publisher. I'm led to believe that it's because they do not think that Julian Assange deserves human rights protections, or they think that all of our outrage is being geared towards demanding additional or extra human rights that he should not be given. I'm led to believe that they don't think, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, they do not think that he is a journalist who is owed the press freedom protections that are being discussed and are the source of outrage from global press freedom groups and other civil society organizations throughout the world who have condemned what the US government is committed to doing. And that to me, is more disturbing than a potential existence of hypocrisy among these US officials, that they're not being consistent enough. Because it would, it, it, it to me is like there's an actual carve out here for Julian Assange. And it was illustrated most vividly during the Summit for Democracy by Antony Blinken introducing a panel on political prisoners. 
and saying things without any connection to the reality that they have created for Julian Assange and using buzzwords like climates of fear, Orwellian legal systems, sham trials, which exactly applies to Julian Assange's case, but yet to talk to them and say that that exists and that the US is, is responsible for that would lead them to blanch and act offended. Like you've completely gone out of line in your accusations of what they're doing. It's again, remarkable, the process again that you're outlining and it should be stated. I, I wanna reiterate that there's an extraordinary number of individuals and organizations that are speaking out to free Assange, to stop the extradition. Of course, you've been covering this at great length at shadowproof.com. AssangeDefense.org also has a long list of it. And in fact, is um, actually houses the panel that you, you hosted with Ellsberg, Chomsky, and others, Marjorie Cohn, others. Um, you know, some of these groups include Amnesty International, Penn International, Reporters Without Borders, Article 19, Human Rights Watch, the ACLU, of course, Project Censored, um, has long, long supported this work, Free Press, Freedom of the Press Foundation. I mean, I could go on and on. There's many, 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 many more. The Committee to Protect Journalists. Kevin Gostola, why then uh, is this just not something that either isn't widely covered in the corporate press in the U.S., uh, and if and when it is, it is framed in a very diabolical way. There was a major series of pieces in a major U.S. newspaper very recently that had on the same page the juxtaposition of an article decrying the state of U.S. journalism, claiming we needed a free press more than ever and we needed to protect journalists. On the same page as an article that was basically, you know, slamming Assange. Uh, and there was like no sense of irony. There's a total disconnect on the same page of this major U.S. newspaper. What is your analysis of just how deeply rooted is the corporate media with the national security complex in terms of their treatment of Assange in this case? My sense is that there's a lot of hubris within the establishment media based upon their ability to have access to power and that they don't believe that they're ever going to be vulnerable to this kind of prosecution or that their lawyers, you know, their general counsel, whoever represents them in their media organization, especially if we're talking about legacy media, will be able to communicate with their contacts in the Justice Department and come to an understanding where they would back off and they'd be able to resolve any sort of issues. Of course, that assumes that people who are in power are politically inclined to bargain if they're entirely hostile, like the previous administration of President Donald Trump, or maybe if they don't want to bargain or do any dealing with you, there was a very clear example under President Barack Obama's administration when the administration had Attorney General Eric Holder seeking to force James Risen to reveal his confidential sources during a leak prosecution against CIA whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling. So I think that it's misplaced to believe that they aren't going to ever be in the crosshairs, but they also don't think that Julian Assange is like them. They deliberately tried to create designations for Julian Assange that would make it unnecessary for them to show solidarity that they would to other professional colleagues. Now they'll call him a source instead of a partner. They say they got the documents from him as a source, even though WikiLeaks partnered with The Guardian, The New York Times, on these documents. We're speaking with 
Kevin Gostola, managing editor of shadowproof.com. If you're interested in the facts of the Assange case, shadowproof.com is definitely one place to go. In fact, it's one of the best places to go, and that's why we're delighted to welcome back Kevin Gostola to the Project Censored Show. We're going to continue our conversation about the Assange extradition case after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome back Kevin Gostola. He is managing editor at shadowproof.com, also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. We're talking with Kevin right now about the Julian Assange extradition case. One of his recent articles dated December 10th is Assange plans to appeal high court decision backing extradition to the United States. So before the break, Kevin Gostola, you were talking a little bit about the journalistic or free press implications, the way that the legacy media in the United States tends to frame Assange, not as a colleague, not as a journalist and publisher, but quote, as a source, end quote. So let's dive into this right now. The Assange case is significant for many reasons. We talked about some of the human rights issues. Let's just dive right in, press freedom. You mentioned legacy media outlets that are using Assange information as sources are winning Pulitzer Prizes while they simultaneously call for his extradition or throw him under the bus, so to speak, and fail to, to rise up. Despite the fact that many, 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 many organizations that I was rattling off earlier that represent the journalistic profession support him, it's the main legacy media, sort of the, the corporate establishment press, the big journalistic names, they're silent or worse. So let's talk about free press implications again of Assange's extradition case. I also want you to talk about the narrowness and the myopic nature of the charges that he would face in the U.S. And then we want to also talk about some of the positive things that you were alluding to that might be going along with this. We've had this very broad case in the United Kingdom where a lot of different issues have been able to be brought in. We were able to talk about the political motivations of the U.S. government describe the CIA's secret war on WikiLeaks, even if it falls on deaf ears, you know, the high court entirely ignored this bombshell Yahoo News report that was done by Michael Isakoff and two other reporters that confirmed something in the establishment media. Bits and pieces were out there. Max Blumenthal at Gray Zone had done an exceptional report on it. I'd done some work putting together a narrative of the CIA's war on WikiLeaks. Then El Pais in Spain had been digging into what was happening with this private security company to target Assange. But then now we have the establishment accepting that there was a war on WikiLeaks that was built around seeking revenge against a publisher, which is huge. And so that issue, it's important for people to understand, is not going to be allowed into a trial against Julian Assange in the United States. We are going to see it narrowly focused on the events detailed, which is the alleged interactions, the alleged story that the U.S. Justice Department wants to tell us, which I think is a conspiracy theory that has not a lot of evidence to back it up. But what they want to say about Julian Assange's collaboration with Chelsea Manning, and we're not going to be able to bring in these issues that are important of human rights and of press freedom. And so that's something for people to really consider. But you know, in the past week, 
in following the fallout of this decision, because there has been some fallout. The fact that it came on International Human Rights Day created a massive contradiction for the U.S. government, which is not good for the image and reputation of the U.S., which wants to sell itself as a example for democracies and countries that believe in human rights. And you have this issue. I think I might have spoken about it previously on Project Censored's radio show, but I'll say this. You have the leader of Azerbaijan sitting across from a BBC news correspondent. And as he is asked about his own brutal record against journalists, he decides the way he's going to get out of being held accountable is to invoke Julian Assange and the fact that the UK is jailing a journalist right now on behalf of the United States. And autocrats, people who are leading dictatorial regimes are seeing this. People who are in the government of China who want to deflect from any valid allegations against them of violating press freedom are stepping forward and saying, we do not need to answer the United States because they are jailing Julian Assange. They are prosecuting Julian Assange. So I think that what we are seeing is a potential sea change in attitudes globally. We've had a couple leading parliamentarians in Australia step forward. The deputy prime minister in Australia came out against this. He's a right-wing person, but doesn't really matter. He's got a position of power in Australia. There are some parliamentarians in the UK. We're beginning to see a few Congress people here and there become more aware of the Assange prosecution. I believe that something is happening that could be positive. Indeed, calling attention to it in that way makes it difficult. Well, certainly makes it uncomfortable for somebody at the BBC to be hearing that in an exchange. You know, it reminds me of several other times in our history where in the United States, I'm using the, the word we quite loosely here since, since people like you and I certainly wouldn't be behind any of these kinds of things. But, you know, the Soviets used to call out the U.S. civil rights policies by simply showing footage of police and dogs beating African-Americans and saying, well, funny how you're making the world better for democracy and you can't even seem to treat people equally in your own backyard. The U.S. has no shortage of hypocritical historical scenarios in this in this regard. But I think you point out something quite rightly. Not only did they spy upon Assange, but they talked about targeting him, kidnapping him, killing him. I mean, they literally talked about killing him. Talk about shooting the messenger. They were calling for this person's death, not just extradition, but then in the same breath at the extradition trial, we're hearing that they basically want to just invite him over for a friendly chat at the Ritz-Carlton over tea. I mean, it's pretty preposterous given the way that he's been treated, that he would, A, be treated fairly here in the U.S. and get a fair trial, and B, that they wouldn't just go ahead and continue torturing him. What are your thoughts about just the, the hypocrisy of that angle? Yeah, so they were able to put forward a bunch of lies about the mass incarceration system of the United States that have been accepted and that the legal team for Assange has had to deal with this obstacle of the judges in these courts treating as fact these assertions from this US attorney, his name's Gordon Cromberg, and he's in the Eastern District of Virginia. And he makes all these claims about when he comes over here, he's not gonna be in solitary confinement because administrative segregation is not solitary confinement. 
people who are involved in prison work have punctured that lie 10 times over. He'll say things like, oh, he'll have access to health care in prisons. There are prison policy people who know exactly that that's a lie. And if, but all of this is out there and it's treated as fact by the judges and it's taken in good faith. And what's happened is our prison issues and the, the problems of how Julian Assange has been abused have been sidelined very deliberately and clearly by this latest decision, by this High Court of Justice, which has decided that the diplomatic relationship, the allied relationship between the UK and the United States is more important than Julian Assange's own life. That the reasoned decision, the carefully constructed decision of District Judge Vanessa Baretzer, which they do not contest, in fact, they upheld her decision about his mental health, her conclusions, the way she came to the conclusion that he would likely be inclined to try and kill himself in a U.S. prison, she said she went through all of the facts and everything and did that appropriately. But what they object to is denying an extradition request that would poison and maybe make toxic or raw the relations between the UK and the US temporarily. And for that reason, they're allowing this to proceed. And you know, the reason why they can allow this to proceed, the last thing I'll say, the reason they're able to do this without having the reservations that many of us have in the US is because there's no First Amendment in the UK. There is an Official Secrets Act that puts extreme limitations on what can be published. And there are officials in the UK government that are targeting national security journalism regularly, seeking to expand the way that they can restrict what is published in ways that are far beyond what we see here in the United States. And so they are. that's why they gave a green light to the United States. They do not share the same traditions of freedom of the press that we have here in the United States. So Kevin Gastola, you mentioned officials in Great Britain. Could you talk about anybody in the U.S. Congress or um, U.S. officials that, that come to mind that are in support of Assange as a journalist, as a publisher, are opposed to his extradition? Are there any people in the U.S. political system that you are aware of that this is an issue that matters to them? No, there simply are no people in the U.S. Congress or the Senate that believe that Julian Assange is a publisher who should be defended. We have some hints of representatives and senators being willing to come forward and give a kind of backhanded opposition to this prosecution by saying things like, and I'm really concerned that this is what we're gonna be hearing a lot of because it is rather abusive to Julian Assange, but I'll just use this as an example because it illustrates where I, what I think we're going to be hearing if we get any kind of opposition in Congress. And we should have opposition. And opposition is opposition. But there's a parliamentarian in Australia who came forward and said, Julian Assange is a rat bag, but he's our rat bag. And we need to bring him back home because this is wrong to do to one of our citizens. We can't allow this to happen. And I just, I can imagine that like, that's gonna be the tenor. If we even get opposition from our Congress, they're gonna be saying things that are real hard pills for us to swallow because they will be on the right side, but they're gonna be fueling ignorance about Assange and WikiLeaks in ways that don't really repair 
the damage that has been done and does not create a new path for protecting future organizations that may engage in this crucially important work. Well, Kevin Gostola, you've been doing crucially important work actually covering what's happening with WikiLeaks and Assange and many, many, many other whistleblowers at shadowproof.com. And I know that as a result of all the work that you've been doing over the years that you are putting together a book on the Assange case and we're we're delighted to see that you'll be doing that work over the next several months. And we, we should see a book from you on the censored press sometime maybe early 2023, when we'll even know much more about what's happening here. Your work is continuing. You're going to be compiling in a book form all of your coverage and the updates of what's happening with the Assange case and extradition. And of course, we'll definitely be having you back on the Project Censored show. There are going to be updates what do you think is going to be happening over the next several months? The next thing is this appeal from Julian Assange's legal team. They'll submit before Christmas, by December 23rd, uh, December 24th, and then that will be reviewed by the British Supreme Court, which will decide if they are willing to hear this appeal. And um if it's accepted, we'll have another round of proceedings, much like what we just saw before the high court. And if that is rejected, then he will likely see that the extradition request is sent to the home office, which is like the State Department, so to speak, the kind of foreign secretary who has the power to sign off on this extradition and send Julian Assange to the United States. So the urgency is there. We need people to be confronting their senators and Congress people right now. If you can make phone calls, say something to them about how you care about press freedom and you don't think we should be targeting a publisher. Kevin Gostola, as always, thank you for your very important work as an independent journalist. You are the managing editor of Shadowproof.com, co-host of the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. And again, you've been one of our go-to sources on Assange and whistleblowing for some time. Thank you so much for your good work, and I'm sure we'll be having you back on the Project Censored show for updates about Assange in the near future. That's shadowproof.com. You can learn more about the case overall and those working to support Assange at assangedefense.org. Kevin Gastola, thanks for joining us on the Project Censored show. Thank you. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. Up next, we re-air a conversation I had earlier in the year with Project Censored's Associate Director, Andy Lee Roth. We'll discuss an article he wrote for the Marcaz Review, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome back the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. Project Censored, of course, has dealt with news media censorship for over four decades. And over that time, the means by which information is controlled, curated, or censored has changed. The end game remains the same. The public is not informed enough about how their news ecosystems work, and they don't necessarily know when or why they're getting information or not getting information they need. In a recent article, Andy Lee Roth writes about the new gatekeepers, how proprietary algorithms increasingly determine the news we see. 
Andy Lee Roth is, as I noted, Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates the project's Campus Affiliates Program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. Andy Lee Roth co-edited the project's newest book, and his work has been published in a number of outlets, including Index on Censorship, In These Times, Yes Magazine, Media, Culture, and Society, and the International Journal of Press and Politics. Today, we'll talk to Andy Lee Roth about a recent piece that was published by the Marcaz Review. Andy Lee Roth, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Thanks so much, Mickey. It's always a pleasure to join you on the show. Indeed it is. And of course, full disclosure, I co-edited the Censored Book 2021 with you this past year. And of course, you can learn more about that work at projectcensored.org. This time around, Andy Lee Roth, you've written a piece for the Marcaz Review, and you took a deep dive into the new forms of censorship in a digital era. And given that Project Censored has been focusing on news media censorship for over four decades, let's set this up. In the 21st century, in 2021, you're writing about something old but new. You're talking about new gatekeepers. Let's talk a little bit about this new form of censorship that we see online. Could you set this up for us? The new gatekeepers are algorithms, artificial intelligence programs, in this case controlled by big tech companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, that use these proprietary algorithms to determine the kinds of news stories we're likely to see and know about when we are on these major fundamental and global platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Google's search engine. And so one of the guiding principles of any sort of ethical journalism is that news should be accountable and it should be transparent. That's one of the ethical tenets of the Society of Professional Journalists. And what I argue in this article that was published in Marcaz Review is that news gatekeeping conducted by proprietary algorithms crosses wires with that ethical guideline. And the result is grave threats to the integrity of journalism and the likelihood of a well-informed public. So Andy Lee Roth, over the years, Project Censored, of course, has dealt with a myriad form of censorship or censorship in many guises, both decrying censorship while also buttressing a truly independent and free press. So it's problem plus solution. So we're not just pointing fingers up and saying that this is a problem. We're also going to try to come up with some solutions. And we're going to get to that later in our conversation because your article doesn't just lay out the problems. It does give us some direction about what to do. But let's talk about this new kind of gatekeeping and algorithms. And in order to do that, perhaps you could set up that kind of language or analysis for us about gatekeeping in general. I want to take us back to the 1950s to a pair of foundational studies in the history of communication and the sociology of news. The first of these studies was conducted by David Manning White, and he spent time, several weeks, with the editor of a small Midwestern newspaper. David Manning White was interested in how this editor chose news stories that were coming over the newswire. White called this editor Mr. Gates because White's understanding of this process was that the editor acted as a kind of gatekeeper. And this was a position of influence and to some extent power, choosing what stories go into the paper and what stories don't. So White studied Mr. Gates' decision process for several weeks, and what he found was that 
there were two types of reasons that Mr. Gates provided for rejecting stories as being worthy of inclusion in the paper. Some of these stories were rejected on practical reasons. Mr. Gates felt the story was vague, the writing was dull, or the story had simply come in too late and there was no space left in that day's edition of the paper. But in 18 of the 423 decisions that White examined, Mr. Gates rejected the stories for political reasons. For instance, saying this story is no good, it's pure propaganda, it's too red. And White concluded his 1950 article about gatekeeping in the news editing process by emphasizing, here I'll quote directly, highly subjective, how based on the gatekeeper's own set of experiences, attitudes, and expectations, the communication of news really is. So David Manning White's study established as a fundamental for people interested in news and communication, the power of the editor as a gatekeeper, and more specifically, that that power often manifested in White's assessment as a form of the editor's own political bias, his own individual bias, shaping the decision about news, about what qualified as news. The interesting thing, I think, about White's study is what happened almost immediately after it was published. Another researcher, Walter Gieber, decided to conduct a similar study, only this time, instead of looking at just the decisions of a single wire editor, David Manning White's Mr. Gates, Gieber looked at the decisions of 16 different wire editors. So they're making the same kinds of decisions. They work at the same kinds of news organizations, but Gieber is looking at a number of them. Gieber's findings basically refuted what White had concluded previously, that gatekeeping was a subjective individual decision process. Instead, what Gieber found was that the editors, independently of one another, were making very much the same decisions. So gatekeeping was real, the power of the gatekeeper was real, but the editors were treating story selection not as a matter of pursuing a particular political agenda, but as kind of a professional daily job. Gieber described editors that he studied as being concerned with goals of production and bureaucratic routine. And a number of studies since then have reinforced Gieber's findings that professional assessments of newsworthiness not political partisanship, guide news workers' decisions about what stories to cover. And I think that finding, although it's a commonplace in, say, the sociology of news media literature, is just an insight that has failed to make any headway in public discussions about news bias more generally. We still see again and again discussions driven by the notion of this journalist or this outlet is driven by a personal and sometimes individual agenda politically. And there's just a huge amount of evidence in the field that I have spent most of my life studying the sociology of news production to show that that's simply not so. But that understanding of the, the significance of personal political bias in shaping news content is kind of like a zombie that won't die, despite the evidence to the contrary. But for a long time then, whether you find White's initial analysis compelling or Gieber's more institutionally and organizationally focused study of gatekeeping compelling, it's always been humans that have been the gatekeepers. This um, is fascinating because of what we're going to be talking about in a few moments about big tech, Silicon Valley, algorithms, 
sort of a new type of news filtering. But in your article at themarkaz.org, M-A-R-K-A-Z.org, you also write about sociologist Michael Shudson, and you talk more about the gatekeeping model as being problematic. Could you introduce that to our listeners? Like all models or theories in the social sciences, they follow trends or they enjoy popularity and they fall out of favor, just like fancy restaurants in downtown Los Angeles. The gatekeeping model fell out of favor as other models came onto the scene that seemed to better explain the news production process. And Shudson was one of the people who did a fair amount to discredit the utility of the gatekeeping model. He described it as a handy, if not altogether appropriate, metaphor in a 1989 article, The Sociology of News Production, that's been very influential and republished multiple times. The gatekeeping model, Shudson said, was problematic because it leaves information sociologically untouched. His critique was that gatekeeping treats news as something that comes preformed to an editor when in fact the production of news is so much more complex and multifaceted and multi-staged than that. And so a model of news gatekeeping that treated the news as if it was preformed was for Schutzen and others an inadequate model. And part of my argument is that while that was in many ways true of news as it's been produced for decades, if not centuries in the United States, that under the new conditions that we face now, where algorithmic gatekeeping by big tech companies that don't see themselves as engaged in journalism, they don't even acknowledge that they are media entities. This gatekeeping model now kind of sidesteps some of the Shudson critique because for these big platforms for Google, Facebook, and Twitter who don't produce news stories of their own, news does arrive kind of preformed. And they, in the form of their algorithms, are making decisions about what news stories circulate widely and don't circulate widely. We're going to get to that element of news production and this new digital era censorship, deplatforming, algorithmic news filtering. But I couldn't help but note the dates around here in the late 80s. Of course, you and I are very aware of Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky's propaganda model coming out of manufacturing consent in 1988. How do you see that segueing between these couple of models, Herman and Chomsky? They talk about ownership and advertising and what's newsworthy, right? Who's newsworthy and who's not newsmakers and shapers and the role of ideology and flack and these kind of things. Where does this fit in and and does this analysis segue into the more algorithmic types of censorship that we're seeing now? The propaganda model that Herman and Chomsky developed in the late 80s, as you say, was focused on the idea of news being subject to filters, filters that didn't render the news more clean and healthy but that rendered it more sterile. The filters that Herman and Chomsky were interested in filtered out anything that would challenge status quo understandings or official narratives about why things are the way they are and why the people in power legitimately deserve to be in power. So in that sense, I think, although Herman and Chomsky writing in 1989 in the very earliest days of what we know now and take for granted as the internet, didn't talk about algorithmic censorship. I think algorithmic censorship of the sort I'm interested in in this article, The New Gatekeepers, is entirely compatible with the propaganda model that Herman and Chomsky advanced. 
I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Right now, we're speaking with the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We're discussing a recent article just published at the Marcaz Review, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. After this brief musical break, we'll learn more about how this happens. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we are joined by the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We are discussing a recent article just published at the Marcaz Review. That's the Marcaz, M-A-R-K-A-Z dot org. The new gatekeepers, how proprietary algorithms increasingly determine the news we see. Just a reminder, Andy Lee Roth, again, Associate Director of Project Censored. He coordinates the project's Campus Affiliates Program, which is a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. His most recent book, co-edited, is Project Censored State of the Free Press 2021, out on Seven Stories Press. Andy Lee Roth, before the break, we were talking about a history of gatekeeping and different types of models for understanding news curating, if you will. And we're now getting to the part of your article that talks about algorithmic news filtering. You make some really keen distinctions about the types of past and present filtering, so-called censorship, if you will. So could you talk to us about this algorithmic news filtering in the 21st century? So the original gatekeeping that we've been discussing is, is, as I mentioned previously, has always been a human enterprise. It's human decisions. And therefore, it was subject to researchers, if they could get access to newsrooms, they could go and they could study directly how editors made decisions about what stories made the news and what stories didn't make the news. The challenge with the new algorithmic gatekeeping, or at least one of the fundamental challenges, is that it's impossible for a contemporary version of a David Manning White or a Walter Gieber to study gatekeeping processes at Google or Facebook. The algorithms that are engaged in the new gatekeeping are protected from public scrutiny. They're considered by the corporations that utilize them to be proprietary intellectual property, and they're guarded carefully as such. And so we end up having to try to study the effects of these algorithms in indirect ways. My colleague April Anderson and I published an article early last year in the Index on Censorship, where one of the things we were looking at how algorithmic content filtering on a variety of online and social media platforms disproportionately affects LGBTQ people and communities. And one of the things we did to try to understand the power of these algorithms was to compare a week's worth of coverage of LGBTQ issues as reported back to us by Google News and DuckDuckGo, another search engine that also aggregates news stories. And what we found when we looked at Google News was that it was remarkably biased in terms of the content that it would uh, report back, that most of the content that rated most highly on Google News 
Much of it didn't even come from outlets that I would consider to be news organizations. And much of it was far more prejudiced against LGBT people, communities, and issues than any of the contemporary polling we have suggests that public opinion is on those same issues. So incredible bias. It's impossible, though, as as we noted in our Index on Censorship article, then it would be impossible to assess whether Google News was biased in those ways because its algorithm is biased or whether because conservatives with homophobic and transphobic agendas were skillfully gaming the algorithm to to promote their own virulent content. That question is not answerable as long as the algorithms are proprietary. And again, the other issue here is that these are a handful of private corporations claiming proprietary rights over information that is actually a big part of the public sphere, and this runs headlong into the public's right to know the role of a free press and how we need to be accurately informed in order to have meaningful civic engagement. This is a major challenge we have. Ironically, in the so-called information era, we purportedly have information at our fingertips, but how does that information get to the fingertips? And Andy Lee Roth, you pointed out an issue that Project Censored was involved in last year as a co-sponsor of a of a media literacy conference that was seemingly disappeared from YouTube as an example of how even seemingly innocuous scholarship about these topics can be disappeared on the internet. That's right. And that was in some ways an impetus for my writing this article. Of course, working with Project Censored for years now, I'm familiar with the idea of online content filtering. But this was the first time that something that I had been involved with had been subject to it. So yeah, this October 2020 conference that Project Censored was a co-sponsor of, along with USC and Stanford, I believe, major organizations with significant academic clout. There was nothing remarkable per se about the content of these panels. And yet after the conference had concluded and after the organizers had uploaded video recordings of some 20 hours of conference presentations to a YouTube channel that had been created by the conference organizers to make the sessions available to a wider public. After all that, YouTube removed those conference videos without any notification or explanation. A conference where public scholars and activists were warning about the dangers of media censorship. Ironically, such conference and those messages were subject to media censorship. And that got me thinking about Mm -hmm. models for what had happened. And the first that I sort of thought about was in George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, how technology that people who use it refer to as memory holes. It's an ironic naming because, of course, the things that are dumped in the memory holes are any kind of documentation or evidence of positions or events that might conflict with or undermine the dystopian government's interests as determined by the Ministry of Truth. So, you know, it felt a little bit like this critical media literacy conference had been subjected to a digital memory hole. But as I thought about it further, that's when I really came on to the idea that, no, this was actually this new form of an old model, a new form of gatekeeping. The concept that White and Geber had developed in the 50s was newly applicable. By the way, you also mentioned, in addition to the algorithmic censorships, you do mention more of the old form of deplatforming, mentioning these tech companies deplatforming then President Donald Trump, 
suspending Parler, a popular site where many Trump supporters would go. And, and you aptly point out that these were clearly human decisions. So we're dealing with multiple avenues of censorship or deplatforming here. And I think the significant thing about the deplatforming of Trump and many of his supporters and the suspension of Parler after the January 6th assault on the Capitol, there were two things about those that I think are very important to understand to differentiate that kind of media control from what I'm calling the new gatekeeping. As you point out, Mickey, those were human decisions. They were reported in the news And it wasn't the focus of the stories about those decisions that humans had made them, but that was implicit in the coverage. The other thing is they were reported as newsworthy events in their own right. They were treated, as C. Wright Mills, the sociologist, would say, as public issues, things that concerned more than the immediate circle of people who were directly involved in them. They mattered to the society as a whole. By contrast, though, The kinds of things that I'm calling the new gatekeeping are stories that may be well known to listeners of the Project Censored radio show, but have not enjoyed the kind of widespread media attention that the deplatforming of Donald Trump by Twitter or the suspension of Parler received. So I'm thinking about issues like how independent news outlets have documented the ways in which Twitter, Facebook, and others have suspended the uh, accounts of Venezuelan, Iranian, and Syrian users who have been posting content that conflicts with U.S. foreign policy. As I mentioned, April Anderson and I have written about how the Google News aggregator filters out pro-LGBTQ stories while amplifying homophobic and transphobic voices and also how changes made by Facebook to its news feed effectively throttled web traffic to progressive news outlets like Mother Jones. In each of those cases, the decisions have not been treated as public issues. They haven't been reported on as such. The decisions to filter content have not been widely appreciated. And this is the heart of the argument. Those decisions weren't made by humans, or at least they weren't made directly by humans. They were made by algorithms. And so increasingly, the news is a product of both the daily routines and professional judgments of journalists, editors, and other news professionals, but also the product of the assessments of relevance and appropriateness that are being made on a daily, hourly, you know, moment-by-moment basis by artificial intelligence programs that we don't know very much about. But we do know they're controlled by private for-profit corporations that don't see themselves as engaged in journalism and therefore not responsible to the kind of ethical standards of good journalism. Well, Andy Lee Roth, near the end of your article at themarkaz.org, it's a special issue on the truth or why truth, uh, a fascinating series of articles, yours among them. You write that there are critical studies of algorithmic bias, and you point out to readers some of the key scholars that are trying to help us understand this, including Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression. She was one of the people that spoke at the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas that was disappeared. You mentioned Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction. And you go on to talk about how we don't just need to sit around and wait for others to try to tackle this problem for us. What can we do in response to algorithmic gatekeeping? And you recommend four proactive responses. Could you share these things that we can all be doing 
The first one is to avoid using Google as a verb. And I want to give a shout out to our colleague, Emil Marmol, who at that very conference alerted me to this kind of thing that we all do, right? It's a common habit to say, oh, I'll Google that. And when we use our language that way, when we talk about a generic online activity using the brand name of a corporation, we're reinforcing the status quo. There's something ironic about using the term Google to talk about a way of seeking information where we're using the very name of a company that is in many ways controlling and filtering the kinds of information that we can find for ourselves, even as Google, of course, is sharing all kinds of information about us with other entities who are willing to pay for that information. Let's not use Google as a verb and think about using search engines other than Google. This is the second point I make of a recommendation for a proactive response to these issues, things we can do now, today, on our own. Remember that search engines and social media feeds aren't neutral information sources. Third, I think it's important to connect directly to the news organizations that you believe display firm commitments to ethical journalism. In other words, don't rely on social media feeds to get your news. I recommend going to the outlet's website, signing up for the outlet's email list or its RSS feed, subscribing to it if it has a print edition. So Andy Lee Roth, you have the four proactive responses. Avoid using Google as a verb. You recommend moving from Google to say DuckDuckGo as an example. Connect directly to news organizations that display firm commitments to ethical journalism. And then last, you call for one other thing regarding algorithms. Yeah, calling out algorithmic bias when you encounter it. In some ways, my whole article is me doing just this. I was at this Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, as were you, Mickey, and many of our colleagues, and important insights that I think are well worth sharing. It's at least hard now, if not impossible, to find these things via YouTube. This article is partly me doing what I'm recommending others do, call it out directly both to the entity responsible for the algorithmic censorship, but also calling it out publicly by letting others know about it. Andy Lee Roth, author most recently of an article at the Marcaz Review, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. Thanks once again for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks, Vicky. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.